0: Pray, Father, we thank you for your presence. Lord, we are assembled here this morning, the members of Faith Bible Church, to be a temple, so that your spirit, as you indicate in the New Testament, is here, present in a unique and particular way. And Lord, you want to speak to us through the scriptures. And so we just pray this morning that you would help us, help us to hear, help us to understand, help me to be clear, oh Lord God, and grow us, grow us together, grow us in love and in unity, grow us in boldness and faithfulness. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, after I announced our news this morning, I walked back down to the pew, and Ashley leans over to me and says, you are such a man. And you know, when I hear that, I'm like, oh yeah, thank you, that's, that's, that's just wonderful. And then she went on to say, you didn't give any details whatsoever. You are such a man. And it's true. I didn't give you very many details. I'm sorry. Uh, By match, I mean match for adoption. So I don't think I even said the word adoption in that. I didn't tell you that the baby is not yet born, and that the baby will be born, God willing, within about three to four weeks. So um, we we've been slammed into emergency mode this last week, as you can expect. But God is good. God is faithful. Uh, but it's just interesting, that little vignette, uh, and it brings us, really, to our topic this morning, which is a portrait of biblical manhood. And we're going to go to this topic. Uh, it actually intersects not only with last week's sermon, but it also intersects with Matthew 19 through 20. Uh, Matthew, ni- We've been in Matthew, and Matthew 19 through 20 has been this kind of segment where Jesus is correcting cultural values. Uh, he's correcting cultural values uh, regarding marriage, divorce, remarriage, uh, regarding self-reliance, rich young ruler, uh, regarding, um, uh, regarding service and greatness. And uh, what he's doing is you've got some, some person that comes up to him, and he corrects them, and he says, here's what you're valuing, And here's what you as a representative of the culture are valuing, but here's how it really is in God's culture, the culture of the kingdom. And he's not only doing that for the person who approaches him, but also for the disciples, the disciples. Because if you have the culture of the kingdom, it's going to be inverted from the cultural values that are around you. Well, we all know that there are uh, the, the touch point today for Uh, inverted values is the gender confusion that is happening in our culture. It's a symptom of the disease, the god of our culture, which is expressive individualism. I am an individual. I will express myself however I want to, and everyone around me must affirm me and, and celebrate me in whatever that looks like. That's the god of expressive individualism, and it has shown up in the seeming, or the, at least the attempt, at plasticity in gender. in gender, We don't know what a man or a woman is anymore. So I appreciated Andre's sermon last week in bringing up this idea of manhood. He spoke to manhood, and we really need to talk about that. And really, that, that sermon just illustrated we need to spend some time uh, to talk about, well, what is biblical manhood, and what is biblical womanhood? What are the portraits of each of those things, because that's where our culture is at. And if we understand the kingdom's culture regarding those things, we will be able to speak better and firmly and hold steadfastly to what God would have us do. See, our culture despises the biblical portraits of biblical manhood and womanhood. And so we're just going to take these couple weeks to give a brief overview. We can't say all that's going to be said or that could be said from the scriptures about biblical manhood and womanhood, but we want to take a week, a week on biblical manhood, a week on biblical womanhood, and what does it look like? What does it look like? You see, in our culture, we're going to start today with biblical manhood, and if our culture thinks about men, they think, I would argue, in one of two ways about men. They think either, on the one hand, uh, a man as a macho man, right? The macho man who's going to be strong, he's going to go riding, you know, doing all sorts of things, hunting, fishing, riding dirt bikes, uh, any number of things that you would associate with being a macho man. But on the other side of the spectrum, when someone thinks of a man, they think of a man as weak and as um, inferior even. You think of the the child man who's in his mom's basement at age 35 playing video games, right? Those are the kind of the two ends of the spectrum when our culture thinks about men. But the question is, how does the Bible think about men. And Andre Goddard started last week of thinking about this idea of striving towards um, courageous and strong biblical manhood. Now, before we get j- jumping into this, I did want to give you some resources. Uh, if, th- Like I said, we're not going to be able to say all that could be said about this. I want to give you some resources that you could look at later. And those should have been in your bulletin, little blue strip of paper. Uh, and uh, you could look at that, uh, the Transform Conference in Spokane. It's a biblical counseling conference that gets put on every couple years. It just happened a couple weeks ago. But uh, in 2021, Owen Strand, uh, um, uh spoke there to this issue of biblical manhood and womanhood, and you can still access that conference. You can access the videos and the, the audio to that. You do have to pay for that access, um, but it is a well worth it to look into it. Uh, also, connected to that, uh, there's a book by Owen Stran and Gavin Peacock called The Grand Design, a little book on biblical manhood and womanhood that you could read. That might be a good starting point. There's also a website, uh, the website for the Council of Biblical Manhood and Wo- Womanhood, cbmw.org. Lots of articles, uh, even recommendations for books. So if you want to delve into this, if you want to think through this more, there are some resources to get you started. But we want to talk about a portrait of biblical manhood this morning. And so the big idea is this. Pursue strong biblical manliness conforming to the man, Jesus Christ. Pursue strong biblical manliness conforming to the man, Jesus Christ. And I want to give you five kind of aspects of this portrait that we're developing and that we look at and we see in Scripture. Now, you guys are probably familiar with me enough to know by now, this is going to be a lot of... Bible texts. There's a lot of scripture that has to speak to these issues. What I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to the flow of thought and argument. Don't worry about writing down the text. If you want them, if you can write them down, that's great, but if you want them later, I will make sure to get those in your hands, okay? So first, in our portrait of biblical manhood is this. A strong biblical man understands God's design for biblical manhood. A strong biblical man understands God's design for biblical manhood. Go to Genesis, Genesis 1. Now, you might understand that or uh, be familiar with it at this point, if we're going to talk about the design for something, we're going to talk about its purpose, we're going to end up in Genesis. We're going to end up in Genesis because everything kind of flowers out and expands out from there. And so where are we going to go? If we're going to talk about the biblical design for biblical uh, we're going to talk about God's design for biblical manhood. Where are we going to go? Well, let's go to the marching orders for humanity in general, Genesis one twenty six through 28, Genesis one twenty six through 28, the institution of the Adamic covenant. And we read this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These are the marching orders for humanity. Both male and female are created in God's image and likeness. Now, Those two words, image and likeness, are very important words. The idea of likeness is the idea of sonship, sonship, because you see it in Genesis five. It talks about how Seth is created in Adam's likeness. Well, Seth is Adam's son. And so that idea of an image being, or excuse me, likeness, that's the idea of sonship. On the other hand, image, image has a kind of an outward looking idea. You're imaging forth God. You're displaying God's sovereignty, his majesty, his rule in the world and that's who mankind is to be. It is, uh, is to be a steward ruler under God, and particularly uh, is supposed to rule, exercise dominion over the creation that God has made. You can kind of think about it like this. God has created everything, and it's good, but it's sort of in a raw form, and God is using man and woman to rule over that creation, to retask that creation, to work in that creation for God's glory and honor. And part of this is the bearing of children. But there is a particular initiative and leadership to this that goes to the male, that goes to the male. Look at Genesis 2.15. So Genesis 2, you get kind of the zoomed in portion or idea of uh, the creation, and particularly of the creation of man and woman. And look at Genesis 2.15. So God creates the man. He creates the man first. He creates the male first. And what happens in Genesis 2.15? Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now those two words there, work and keep, um, the idea of keep there, it's not just like you're tending a garden. It's the idea of guarding. Guarding. And those two words, when they are used in Scripture together, most often they are used in connection with the temple, with temple service. And that is the idea here. See, God has created the Garden of Eden. He's created the, the world as a sort of temple complex, the original temple complex. And he has He puts man in there as his image to image him forth to be a son and to be a king, but also to be a priest, to be a priest, to tend and work and serve in the temple that God has created to extend the boundaries of that out into the world and to guard it, to guard it. But already we are seeing some of the design for the man, for the male. He must work. He must take initiative. Uh, He has a central responsibility under God. And there's leadership here too, because God creates the man first, then he creates the woman. He doesn't create the woman from the ground in the same sort of way that he created the man. He creates the woman from the side of man to come alongside him as a helpmate. We'll talk more about that next week. So already in Genesis 1 and 2, we see with the man, the man is to work, to lead, to take initiative, and to have essential responsibility under God. Even in chapter 3, once the fall happens, God speaks to Um, God speaks to the man and the woman, and he speaks to the man first because he holds him responsible. And even as you walk through the the, the judgments that happen, he talks to the snake, and then he talks to the woman, but then he talks to the man, and he says, the ground is cursed because of you. And you're still going to work, but it's going to be hard now. It's going to be hard now. And in all of that, we see the fundamental design of the male To work, to have leadership, to have initiative and essential responsibility under God for the flourishing of God's creation, for the flourishing of His family, and for the glory of God. That is the initial design for biblical manhood. A strong biblical man first understands God's design for biblical manhood. But there's more to it than that, there's more that we can say from the scriptures. Second, a strong biblical man loves the one true God with all of his being. A strong biblical man loves the one true God with all of his being. Go to Mark 12 if you're following along. If you can't, keep, uh, if you can't follow along, that's fine. Just listen to the argument and listen to what's happening here. But we have in Mark 12, we get this, Well, you know, when I talk about loving the one true God with all of your being, you know that I'm talking about the greatest commandment. That is spoken in Deuteronomy 6, so it's spoken in the Old Testament. But uh, also, if we were to look at Jesus, the man, uh, Jesus speaks to this as well. Mark 12, 38, excuse me, 28. Mark 12, 28. And this is, he's disputing, um, there's all these people approaching him and trying to challenge him, and this is what Jesus says, Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is. This is the most important commandment, according to Jesus. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And all of those terms, yes, there is an emphasis on different aspects of who someone is, but Jesus is saying with all of who you are, love God. Now we understand that that is a command to both men and women. It is a command uh, to all of humanity. And yet as men, as we think about this, you know, if you were to think about how our culture would describe that, love a God with all of who you are? No, uh, be your own man, uh, be self sufficient, be powerful, be strong. You don't need anyone else, and you certainly don't need a God because that is a crutch. And what is Jesus saying? The man is saying this. The man is saying this. Love God with all of who you are, every ounce of who you are, your intellect, your strength, your passion, all of it, all of it oriented towards God. And not just some in some kind of out there abstract sense. This is going to take sweat and blood and tears and action. It's going to take all of who you are to love God. And we have some examples of this kind of love. Not perfect, not perfect in the scriptures, but we see examples of men in scriptures who, the scriptures who have this kind of love. Go to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, we're going to look at Abraham. Now, here's the thing with any given biblical example. Any biblical example, save the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to fall short. And we understand and we know that Abraham is not always exemplary. He lies. He uh, he, he, he manipulates, et cetera, et cetera. But there are times when because of his faith, he shines. He shines. And we see that in Genesis 22. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. And what is being tested here is Abraham's ultimate allegiance His dedication to the one true God with all of his being. And Abraham does it. Doesn't question it. He does it. He goes to that top of that mountain. Let's pick up in verse 9. He lays his son on the altar. Genesis 22, 9. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And what is God's point? You have no higher, it's demonstrated, now God knew ahead of time, but it has been demonstrated in time to God and to Abraham that Abraham has no higher allegiance than God himself. He will not withhold his dearest family member, his only son, the son that he loves, the son of promise. Because why? Because he loves God with all of who he is. He fears God, he reverences him, he holds him in the highest esteem. And that is what true biblical manhood looks like. You love God with all of who you are. And nothing and no one else, no exceptions, no nuances, nothing and no one else has a greater spot in your life than God and the fear of God. If you do not, if you do not love God with all of your being, that means that you fear something else, that you love something else higher than God, which is idolatry, and not only that, even as a, someone who proclaims to know God, you say, yeah, I know God, I love God, but I have this other thing that's a little bit higher, you're going to be crippled. You're going to be crippled. You're going to be unable to live life as a true human, let alone as a true man. Let me show you an example of this. Go to John 12. Go to John 12. John is at pains to show, like the other Gospels, that Jesus is the God-man. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And then yet we see the surrounding culture, we've seen this in Matthew, is rejecting him, is rejecting him, and listen to how John characterizes this symptom of that culture that saw the Messiah, saw Jesus' miracles, saw his sign, saw his glory, and yet was not following him. Look at John 12, 42 through 43. It says this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, now the authorities, those are the guys that are opposed to Jesus, and yet it says here, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, But catch this, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's idolatry. A strong biblical man will love the one true God with all of his being, and if he does not, he will be captivated by lesser fears, lesser gods, And so you must, as a biblical man, you must love the one true God with all of who you are, with your thoughts, with your actions, with your affections, your love, everything. Now, if you're honest, though, every single one of us in this room, men and women, but I'm speaking primarily to men right now, we understand that we have not done this. We cannot. Because to do this would be to love God with all of who you are, Uh, not only avoiding the things you're not supposed to do, but actively doing the things that you're supposed to do to honor God. Both of those, 100% of the time, every second of every day, with every thought that comes through your head, and it is impossible. Four fallen creatures who have a sin nature inherited from the first man, Adam. And so here's the reality, even though as men, to be true men, we would need to love God with all of who we are, and yet we cannot be true men in a fallen state and love God with all our beings because we naturally actually hate God and stand against him and are driving everything in our lives against him. That's how the Bible describes our natural state, and so what needs to happen? The only way you're going to be able to love God with all of your being, the only way you're going to be able to be a true man, is if you have a regeneration, a circumcision of the heart, which leads us to our third portrait. We've seen first a strong biblical man understands God's design for biblical manhood in terms of work and leadership and initiative. Second, we've seen a strong biblical man loves the one true God with all of his being. And third, and we're going to spend some time here, a strong biblical man is utterly dependent on God. First, there's multiple subheadings here that we want to go through. And the first, connected with what we were just talking about, a strong biblical man is utterly dependent on God for salvation for salvation. You see, what I was just saying is, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your being, and that's what it means to be a true, strong, biblical man, we all recognize we have fallen short. We cannot do it. So who has to, how can we? How can we be true men? Well, only by being utterly dependent on God and only utterly dependent on God to save us, to change us, to give regeneration of heart, to give us new birth, John 3, we're not going to go there, but John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is this great teacher and ruler of Israel, and he's got it, you know, from a cultural standpoint, he's got it all together, and yet Jesus says, truly, truly, unless I say to you, unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus recognizes, I I need a new birth, but how's it going to happen? And Jesus says, by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God, working and blowing where the spirit wishes to regenerate and cause new life. See, God has to initiate salvation. God has to circumcise the heart such that the heart loves God with all of what it is, so that a man can love God with all of who he is. Go to Philippians 3. Here, it's similar in a lot of ways. Philippians 3 is similar, where Paul is talking. He's talking about his former life. He's really talking about his testimony. He's talking about his testimony. And and in some ways, it's very similar to Nicodemus. Uh, He goes through the laundry list of how, from a human standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, he's got it all together. He's got it made. He is a high-ranking man, an official and seemingly lover of God. But notice what he says. Philippians 3, 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Don't we talk about that as men to be self-confident, to be self-made? But what is Paul says, like, I had confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more skubalon, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, if you want to talk about confidence in the flesh, if you want to talk about striving as hard as you can to love and do what God wants you to do on your own basis and on your own merits, I had it all and I couldn't do it. And in fact, all of that stuff was worthless, less than worthless. It was was disgusting in God's eyes until God, by his grace, Paul says this elsewhere, the spirit grabs a hold of him, changes him, gives him a new birth, and what? That new birth results in repentance, turning allegiance from sin and self, turning from your old way of life, surrendering, bowing the knee in utter dependence to Christ, the one who has died in behalf of sinners like Paul and like you and like, and like me, and is not only dies in their place, but is their righteousness in their place such that God can count them as Righteous such that a man can love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think of it in terms of Matthew, Matthew 18, Matthew 19. Jesus has used this imagery of a child. You're not getting into the kingdom unless you become dependent like a child. The, the most dependent, most low person you could be, you're not getting in by your strength, by your fortitude. It has to come through submission and allegiance to Jesus Christ. So you, as a, if you're going to be a strong biblical man, you have to be utterly dependent on God first for salvation, but not only for initial salvation. It's not as if, uh, as Christians, I said the prayer, I did the moment, God has justified me, I'm, uh, now it's up to me. Now it's up to me to do the hard work of sanctification, of growing in maturity and Christ-likeness, Yes, there is work, there is effort, there is sweat, blood, and tears, and yet none of it matters unless the Spirit of God is empowering it in your life. Paul talks to this in Galatians. Galatians 3, he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Absolutely not. And then in Galatians 5, go to Galatians 5, he talks about If you've been born again by the Spirit, the Spirit of... Here's the reality in the new covenant in Christ. You are born again by the Spirit of God. He takes the initiative and the Spirit comes to live and dwell in you and that can't but change you and empower you and empower you for obedience. Look at Galatians 5, 16. But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, the reality is we're in Christ. We're justified through Christ. We're declared righteous in Christ because God sees us through the lens of Christ, and yet we fight dwelling sin. That is the fight that is on our minds. That is every single day as men and as women And so how do we fight this battle? But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you wanna do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the law, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now that list is what a macho man looks like in our culture, isn't it not? That's what a man looks like in our culture. And God says, no one who does such things will inherit the kingdom of God. But that's our natural tendencies. You and I's natural tendencies. How do we fight it? Well, the spirit is opposed to the flesh. And we get the second half. We get the second half of the list. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What is Paul saying? the Spirit of God lives in you as a believer. How are you going to fight? How are you going to fight those fleshly tendencies, those tendencies that had you hating God and operating against God and looking just like everyone else only by the Spirit of God? And what is the Spirit of God going to produce? Love, joy, peace, patience, all of these things that, that don't look real manly in the eyes of our culture and yet are profoundly so because it is the spirit of the living God that is producing them in you. This is how we live. We walk as men utterly dependent on God for walking in obedience to the extent that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10:13, no temptation is overtaken you that is not common to man and yet God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may able to be, be able to endure it. There is strength, but only as you are utterly dependent on God through his spirit. which leads us into the next stage. A strong biblical man is utterly dependent on God for salvation, for walking in obedience. And notice, obedience does not just mean avoid these things, don't do these things, and you're good. Obedience, biblical obedience, is not just avoiding the things you're not supposed to do, it's doing the things you are supposed to do. And you're only going to be able to do that through dependence on the Spirit. But there's even... We could add another dimension to this. You're going to need to be, as a man, if you want to be a strong biblical man, you're going to need to be utterly dependent on God for acting and risking for the sake of God's name. For acting and risking for the sake of God's name. Now, this takes us back to last week, 1 Samuel 11. 1 Samuel 11, uh, God's people are being threatened. Um, uh, uh, The men of Jabesh-Gilead, they're being threatened. And they send out emissaries. And Saul, who's been anointed king... Um, he's you know, working, he comes in from the field, he hears what's going on, and what happens? Well, he gets angry, and he, he goes out, and he, take, he risks. Why? Because the Spirit of God fell on Saul. And even he cuts up that oxen, he sends it out, he gathers Israel. Why does Israel come? Because the fear of Yahweh came upon them. And even at the end, when uh, Saul has this great victory, when Saul has this great victory, who does he ascribe it to? Who does Saul ascribe it to? No, Yahweh has given us this great victory today. Saul took a risk, Saul acted. He was strong in the strength of the Spirit of God. And the reality is, in the Old Testament, now if you look at 1 Samuel, uh, you can see this both before and after chapter 11. Saul is a weak guy, he's insecure, he's a disaster. But, 1 Samuel 11 was a good day. Why was it a good day? And the only time Saul has a good day is when the Spirit of God comes upon him. And it prepares the way for setting up for the true king, for David. Why did Saul act? Saul acted for the sake of God's name, for his people. And the next king, the true king, the true line coming through David, does the same thing. Go to 1 Samuel 17. Why does a strong biblical man act? He doesn't act for his own reputation. He acts for the sake of God's name. He sees the greatness of God, the awesomeness of God, and he acts. When his people are threatened, when God's people are threatened, he acts. And he acts dependent totally on God's strength. Look at 1 Samuel 17. Now we know 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. We know what happens, okay? We know that you got uh, Saul and the Israelites, they're terrified. They're not dealing with this, even though Saul should have, if he was dependent on the spirit of God as the king, he should have fought fought this battle. Here's puny little uh, shepherd boy, David. He's ruddy and handsome. He's pretty boy coming out, and and, and he is incensed. He is incensed, and then Saul's like, all right, go ahead and go out. I'll put my armor on you doesn't fit. So David's going to go out with a sling and five stones. But notice when he confronts, when he confronts Goliath, start in verse 41. Notice why David acts. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Pretty boy. Verse 43, and the Philistine came and said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now catch this. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword or spear for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hand. And then God does. Because God loves to back a man who's going to lead, take initiative, work, and risk for the sake of God's great name. God loves his name. God loves his glory. And yes, David risked. He took action. But why? Dependent not on his own strength, but dependent on on the power and the glory of his great God. And that is how a biblical man acts. He will risk, he will take action dependent on God's strength to back him up because, not for his own reputation, but for God's reputation for God's reputation, because a strong biblical man loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. God's reputation is foremost in his mind, and he will act and take risk for the sake of God's name. And you think, "Well, well, okay, yeah, that's just David. What about others? And we can give you two other examples that might be helpful for you. Go to the man, Jesus Christ in John 2. The man, the pinnacle, the example of manliness, Jesus Christ. uh, John 2, 14. In the temple, this is Jesus, focusing on Jesus. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So you can imagine this. Jesus is angry. He is incensed by what he sees. And he takes the time. This isn't just like a burst of anger. This is like he takes the time to make him a whip of cords. He knows what he's going to do. But the question is, why does he do it? And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. You can imagine, right? The temple complex is huge. It's massive. So he's going around here and he's going around here with this whip of cords, like whipping people and overturning tables. Like he's, it's, it's, whoa. But why? Why? Verse 16. And he told those who told, told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Why was there zeal? Because Jesus saw that God's name, God's name that he had placed on the temple was being put in the mud, sullied by, tra- uh, by abusive transactions. He acted for the sake of God's name. Paul does the same thing. 1 Corinthians 15. We think of Paul, and he's going around. We read Acts. He's going here. He's going there. He's getting beat up. He's planting churches. He's uh, he's doing all of these things. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, he talks about himself a little bit, and he says, Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. He acted for the sake of God's name, for the sake of Christ's name, and planning churches throughout the known Roman world, or at least a good portion of it though it was not I, but the grace of God who is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so you, we preach, and so you believed. Paul gives more insight into his thinking about his action. Go to 2 Corinthians 12. I mean, just think of Paul. He's all the efforts, all the labors. He, he enumerates them multiple times in the scriptures, and he works hard, but dependent on God's to do so, to act, and to risk for the sake of God's name, dependent on God's grace. And he reflects on this 2 Corinthians 12. He's having to defend his ministry against the Corinthians. And he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 that um, I ha- uh, he's really speaking about himself in the third person. I have these great revelations. I was this, I've got revelations that no one else had. I'm this great guy, right? Or at least according to the flesh. But then what does God do? God gives him a thorn to remind him hey, uh, you're, you're not all that. And we pick up in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that he should leave me, that it should leave me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How do you have strength when you're risking and acting for the sake of God's glorious name? You have strength by being weak, by being utterly dependent on God's power. You act, you work, you, do, you put in the toil, but you do so utterly dependent on God's grace and strength. A strong biblical man acts boldly and courageously and zealously because of God's reputation, not his own. A strong biblical man takes initiative and leads and leads others to his great God. And finally, we would say this under this heading, a strong biblical man is utterly dependent on God for strength. I mean, we've already seen that in 2 Corinthians 12. But here's a question. How do you become strong? How do you gain strength? How do you, as a biblical man, and there are, yes, you're dependent on God, but how does that dependence manifest itself? How does that dependence manifest itself? Turn to Joshua. Turn to Joshua 1. Joshua, going in, he's taking over from Moses to enter the promised land, to conquer these nations that are entrenched. How is this going to happen? How is this going to work? And God talks to Joshua. God talks to Joshua and God encourages Joshua. Joshua 1.6. So imagine this. God is speaking to you directly. And this is what he says to you as a man. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous and do not be dismayed for Yahweh your God will be with you where is with you wherever you go. Joshua needs to be strong and courageous. How is he going to have strength? The scriptures. The scriptures, the book of the law, he's to meditate on it, to think it over, to live in it, to know it, to seek to act on it and to depend upon the God who's going to be with him. But he's going to gain strength through the scriptures. It's the same thing that happens throughout the, uh, the, the Bible. We see this again and again. Actually, very similar language. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man. What does he do? He meditates on the law day and night for, to have a successful way. Uh, 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4, Solomon is com- or David is commissioning his son Solomon. He says, be strong and courageous. How? By conforming your way to the scriptures, to the law. And along with that, So dependence is manifested through meditation on God's word, through the scriptures, and through prayer. And that one's probably the most obvious, but the one we neglect the most. Prayer is an expression of dependence on God. So if you are not praying, you are not being dependent on God. Think of Jesus, the man, the man Jesus. What does he do during his ministry? Not just once, but multiple times. Here's God the Son in human flesh, on earth and what does he do often he goes out by himself and he prays and in those prayers he is dependent on his father think of jesus in gethsemane right before jesus is going to accomplish the mission of his first advent he's saying father take this cup away from me if possible yet not my will but yours be done and he is he is depending on the Father's will and the Father's strength through prayer, knowing what it is he's been tasked to do to be strong in that hour. A strong biblical man is utterly dependent on God for salvation, for walking in obedience, for acting and risking for the sake of God's name and for strength. How does that? He gathers strength from the scriptures and from prayer. fourth, A strong biblical man loves his neighbor as himself. We're talking about the first great commandment, to love God with all of who you are. We've got to talk about the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you go to Luke 10, Jesus, in a similar context, in a similar context to what we saw earlier in Mark, when he gave the first great commandment, we can see a similar context in Luke 10. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, he, here's a good question, one that we might ask. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself and his actions. Jesus knows this who's my neighbor. Then he gives them the parable of the good Samaritan. And at the end, at the end, verse 36, he says this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Who is your neighbor? The one you have the opportunity to show mercy to. And so as we think about a strong biblical man loving his neighbor as himself, it's gonna manifest itself in mercy. Which again, if you think about this with our culture, a strong biblical man is not thought of as having mercy. Often a strong, well, not a biblical man, a strong man is thought of as being ruthless. But Jesus as a strong man, a strong biblical man, loving his neighbor as himself is gonna show mercy. In fact, he's gonna defend the rights of the weak a strong biblical man dist- uh, dist- uh, d- defends the rights of the weak. Go to Proverbs 31. Now, Proverbs 31, we think of the godly woman, and it's there, and we'll talk about it next week. But before the godly woman, there's a, there's a mom giving advice to a king. And part of that advice is this. So here we've got a ruler, a man leading a kingdom, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Notice how this king is supposed to display his strength. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Have mercy on the weak. Have mercy on the weak. Open your mouth, defend the rights of the weak. You want to see an example of this in a godly man in the The scriptures go to Ruth. Go to Ruth. Told you there's a lot of text. But what's beautiful about this is God has not left us in the dark. What does it look like? Go to Ruth. And you know where I'm going with this. Boaz. Boaz, actually both Boaz and Ruth are good examples of biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. It's a beautiful picture. But look at how this man, strong man, wealthy man, defends the rights of the weak. Ruth 2, 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, and remember, just remember the story, uh, Ruth and uh, Naomi goes away with her family. Her family dies, but before they die, um, one of her sons has married this a couple, uh, a Moabite woman, Ruth. They come back to Israel And uh, they they are the weakest they could possibly be in the society. They are widows. Ruth's a Moabitess, a traditional enemy of Israel. This is a bad situation, okay? Weak as they could possibly be in that society. She goes, she gleans in the fields, which is right according to the law of Moses. But then we see this in a picture of how Boaz showed kindness to Ruth in Ruth 2.8. All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You see how Boaz shows tenderness and mercy and defends the rights of the weak. Strong biblical man loves his neighbor as himself, and that's going to mean he's going to serve those around him for their good. We saw this in Matthew 20, Matthew 20, 25 through 28, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be um, uh, the first among you has got to be your slave. And there he's talking about, we talked about this just a couple weeks ago, that there he's talking about if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, and you're going to serve. And you're going to serve those around you, and you're going to serve the church. Because the church is Christ's people, his bride. And if you love Jesus, you're going to love his bride. You're going to love the church, and you're going to serve. And this is totally opposite what m- uh, many men think is strength. It doesn't seem manly to serve. seems man- more manly to be served. And this is the, the mindset that comes behind being an oppressor or an abuser. There is much abuse by men of their wives and of others in our society. And the heart of oppression, the heart of abuse, when the biblical word for abuse is oppression, and God hates oppressors. The heart of an abuser, a heart of an oppressor is seeking coercive control of those around him, whether that's financially, physically, sexually, whatever it is, it's abuse and it's oppression and God hates it. If you are an oppressor, and abuser here this morning, I pray to God that that is not the case because God hates you. Psalm 10, if you don't believe me, read Psalm 10. God hates abuse. He hates oppression. The opposite of that. True manliness is service. Serving others for their good. Ephesians 5, 25-33. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For her good. Sacrificial service and love. That is true biblical manliness. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you're going to serve and you're going to serve the church, then you better be ready to give your life. Go to 1 John. 1 John. A true biblical man loves his neighbor as himself, especially the church. 1 John 3. Listen to how John talks about this. John the apostle who knew our Lord Reclined in his bosom, and he says this, 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he, this is Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the disciples, for Christians, for those in our local church. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If you're going to be a strong biblical man, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, and you've got to be ready to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in the church. And all of that implies this you cannot be isolated. The vision in our culture, the vision in many men's minds is that, well, if I'm a man, I can be off by myself, I'm self-sufficient, I'm okay, I don't need anyone else. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Isolation is weakness. Isolation shows that you're not a strong biblical man because if you were, you would be out and engaged and serving others for their good. Isolation is selfish. Isolation is promoting self rather than the other. And true biblical manliness, you're going to be engaged. You're going to be looking to the needs of others. You're going to be loving your neighbor as yourself. Fifth, and finally, in our portrait, and the most important, is this a strong biblical man conforms to the man. Jesus Christ. There is, Jesus is the ultimate portrait of manliness. No exceptions, no qualifications. How can I say that? Well, Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. And he's talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, but he draws this comparison, which is amazing, and which really brings us full circle. Remember where we started today? We started with God's design for biblical manliness, and we went back to Genesis 1 through 3, and with Adam. Well, really, the New Testament draws this full circle, and we see part of this in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man, referring to Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What is humanity's fundamental marching orders? To be image bearers of God, for his glory, Adam failed badly, and all we still bear the image of God, but it's marred. Unless you're in Christ, who is the ultimate image of God, as the Son of God, God become flesh, the true man, the true human. How do you become human again? How do you become a man again? Through following the man, Jesus Christ. That's what we call sanctification. That's what we call when we surrender to Christ, when we bow the knee to Christ, we recognize, Jesus, you are the man and the man alone who can save me. And not just save me, but transform me and make me truly human and make me truly man. And we'll talk about next week, truly woman by being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Just think of the Gospels and how they present our Lord. He is a man. He is God, but he is a true man. He is tender and tough. He is humble and lowly, yet having all power. A servant, though a king, a leader, submitted to the will of his Father. There is, he is the man, Jesus Christ true humanity and true manliness comes through Jesus Christ you come to Jesus Christ he's going to save you and he's going to change you and he's going to make you a true man you might say yeah but Jesus isn't here right now um what what should a true and godly and mature biblical man look like Well, we've talked about a lot of that, but even so, the scriptures give us even more of that portrait of conformity to Jesus Christ. The elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. Go there quickly. Just go to 1 Timothy 3. Here's what mature manhood looks like. by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And you can read Titus 1:5 5, 5 through 9, but when you come to Jesus Christ, the man, he's going to conform you to his image. He's going to make you a true man. And what's it going to look like? Mature manliness looks like the elder qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So we've seen this morning a strong biblical man understand God's design for biblical manhood. The man is to work, take leadership, initiative, and essential responsibility under God. A strong biblical man loves the one true God with all of his being. A strong biblical man is utterly dependent on God for salvation, for walking in obedience, for acting and risking for the sake of God's name, for strength. A strong biblical man loves his neighbor as himself, and a strong biblical man conforms to the man, Jesus Christ. Now... In conclusion, application, what do we do? Well, I mean, we've already been drawing a lot of application throughout. One thing you will notice as we've walked through this, wait a minute, these things could also be said of women too, at least some of them, some of them could be, because loving God, dependence on God, loving neighbor, conforming to Jesus, that is what women are called to do as well. It's a portrait of humanity, But that portrait will look different on a man and on a woman. And we're going to look more at what does it look like for biblical womanhood to pursue basically those same things next week. We're equally image bearers as man and woman. We just have different functions in the way it looks on us emphasize again becoming truly human and truly man or woman only comes through the gospel of jesus christ first timothy 2 5 there is one mediator between god and man the man jesus christ you want to be a true human you want to be a true man or true woman you bow the knee to jesus christ and he will change you if you're here this morning you're not in christ be a true human Become a true human, become a true man or woman through bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins in your place and rose again, who is your righteousness in your place and is the one mediator between God and men. Men, pursue strong biblical manhood by God's grace and strength. Maybe you failed in the past. I have. It's not over because you, keep, you get up and you keep following Jesus Christ. Men, work. Work. Lead. Take initiative. Take responsibility. Take risks for the sake of God's name. And do all of that. Work hard. Labor hard. Act. But do it all dependent on God's grace through Jesus Christ. And the power of the Spirit working in you. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. There is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Pursue strong biblical manliness with your band of brothers in the local church. Because we're all headed the same direction. We're all following the man, Jesus Christ. Join with us to follow that man. And we encourage one another and help one another to strive towards that women, nourish, see, nourish true biblical manliness. You see, this isn't a sermon just for men. Andre was talking about that last week. This isn't a sermon just for you, or for, for men. It's a sermon for you too, because women, you are nourishers. Nourish true biblical manliness. Uh, Maybe you're just here in the local church. Maybe um, it's a friend uh, who's a brother in Christ. Encourage it in your brothers. As you see a man take initiative, as you see a man lead, as you see a man serving, as you see a man loving others, encourage him. Reinforce that. Nourish that. If you're pursuing a marriage, look for it. Look for a strong biblical man. If you are married, encourage it in your husband. If you're raising a son, if you're a mom raising a son, encourage it in your son to be a strong biblical man. There's application here for all of us and friends. If we do this, if we pursue the the roles that God has given men and women, we live like men and we live like women under Jesus Christ as our King. It will look crazy different from our crazy culture around us, and it'll be an inroads for the gospel. Say. Let me introduce you to the man, Jesus Christ. Pursue strong biblical manliness conforming to the man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, only you can make us truly human, all that we were designed to be. We thank you that by the grace of Christ we stand We stand pure in God's eyes, righteous in God's eyes, and you are conforming us by your spirit to true manliness, true womanhood, and we pray for more. We pray that we would fulfill the roles you have for us, embolden us, give the men in this room, in their families, in their jobs, in their whatever other roles they have, oh Lord God, encourage them, strengthen them, help them to work, lead, take initiative for the sake of your name, dependent on your power. Lord, help our women to look for strong biblical men. Make us this people, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen.